evidence and answers. Did you know that the virgin birth of Christ is one of the earliest prophecies of the Bible? Shortly after the fall, God predicted that the one who would strike the head of the serpent would be born in a miraculous way. There are several predictions of the virgin birth presented in the Old Testament. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucheren. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. The last time we were together, Pat began a Christmas message detailing the reasons and the significance of the virgin birth of Christ. Remember, if you missed any part of this broadcast, head on over to our website, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and look up Reason for the Virgin Birth. You can download it or listen online. Now let's conclude this informative interview. Of every time this word Alma is used, it's used of a young woman of marital age who is a virgin. That's how it's used throughout the Old Testament. Study it. For example, Genesis 24:43, Abraham tells his servant, go get a young Alma to marry my son, Isaac. Well, I hope she wasn't married. Nobody's looking for a young virgin who is not married. So when you study it in the Old Testament, it means virgin. That's why when the Jewish scholars translated the Old Testament into the Greek in about 250 BC, when that translation was made, not by the Christians, <laughs> it's 200 years before Christ, right? by the Jews, they translated the word Alma into the Greek Parthenos, which means virgin. So it is translated correctly. This was to be a miraculous entry of the Son of God. So being born a virgin fulfills biblical prophecy in a miraculous way. And according to biblical scholars, there are over a hundred prophecies made of Christ hundreds of years, centuries before he sets foot upon the earth, which he fulfills regarding his entrance into the world, his life, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. No other person, study them all, all right? No other person has such a legacy of prophetic fulfillment. You know, if a prophecy is made and a guy fulfills maybe one or two, you might say, oh, okay, pretty lucky, you know, got the luck of the draw. All right, but when it comes to 12, when it comes to 24, when it comes to 50 now, what's the probability a guy could fulfill these just by chance? But when you get to the number of prophecies made of Christ, that's pretty much a mathematical zero. Only a infinite, eternal God who is outside of time, who can see the future as clearly as he sees the present, can predict the future and make prophecies with 100% accuracy as was done of Jesus Christ. No other person, none in the history of the world, has so many prophecies written of him which he fulfills. And some skeptics question whether these prophecies were actually made before Christ. Well, we've got pretty powerful evidence for that. There's pretty good evidence that the Old Testament was completed by 400 B.C. And if you don't want to take that historical evidence, the Septuagint, translated under the reign of Ptolemy Philadelphus of Egypt there, 
They completed the Septuagint in 250 BC. That's the Greek translation of the entire Old Testament. And of course, the famous discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947. Perhaps the greatest manuscript discovery of an ancient work of all time. Hundreds, hundreds of ancient manuscripts, some as early as 400 BC they are dating now. Hundreds of manuscripts of the Old Testament were discovered along the Dead Sea Caves there. Twelve caves we have discovered with hundreds of manuscripts. Fragments from every book of the Old Testament were discovered, right? And one like the scroll of Isaiah, we found the entire scroll of Isaiah. Most of them were dated 100 BC. So even if you don't believe Daniel wrote Daniel or Isaiah wrote Isaiah, at least a hundred years before Christ set foot upon the earth, right? we know that these prophecies were down and written and Christ fulfilled each one. Now, the life lesson we learned here is this. Fulfilled prophecy confirms the Bible as the Word of God. It's supernatural confirmation that this book is indeed the Word of God. No other book has hundreds of prophecies of great detail that have been fulfilled as the Bible. There's no other book like it. You don't see it in the Lotus Sutra, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita. Go study them. Only the Bible is supernaturally confirmed in this way. And fulfilled prophecy confirms Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God. No other person in the history of the world has hundreds, over a hundred prophecies predicting their entrance, life, ministry, death, and resurrection as Christ. Fulfilled prophecy exemplifies that this book we have here is given to us by divine inspiration of God and that the Savior we worship is the divine Son of God. So the virgin birth was needed to fulfill prophecy. Second, the virgin birth was needed because we needed a perfect sacrifice, a sinless Savior to fulfill the requirements of the law and to pay the price of sin and death once and for all. Now, when you read the Old Testament law, there were several sacrifices to pay for our sin that was to be made by the Jewish people. And in the Old Testament law, whenever a sacrifice for sin was made, it required a perfect lamb without blemish or a bull or a goat that was, quote, without blemish. You had to find the finest one in your flock to offer to the Lord in payment for our sins. The Passover lamb that was sacrificed the night of the Passover when the angel of death passed over the Israelites on the eve before the great event of the Exodus was to be, according to Exodus chapter 12, a lamb without blemish. Why was that? Well, God is holy and perfect. And the price for sin, for breaking God's law, against a holy and perfect God needed to be a sacrifice without blemish. This symbolized the holiness of God and only a perfect sacrifice can pay the price for our sin. Now, the animal sacrifices, they're temporary, right? They're foreshadowing 
These were done every year, but it was a prophetic symbol of the perfect sacrifice that would one day come and pay for the sins of the world once and for all. So in order to be the savior of men, the ultimate sacrifice had to be human because he needs to take our place, right? Only a, a human life can substitute for another human life. But he had to be perfect without sin. So he had to be human and he had to be sinless. Well, no human can be sinless. It's not possible for absolute holiness to reside in a body of sinful flesh. We're all sinful and fallen. From the time of Adam, Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's not possible for the Messiah to come in the normal way because he would end up inheriting our sin nature. So it's not possible through the normal reproductive process. So if Jesus was conceived in the same way as the rest of us are, then he would inherit the sin nature and a defective body which would disqualify him from being the savior of mankind. But Jesus was born through supernatural means, born in the flesh, but in a way in which he does not inherit our sin nature. Therefore, he was our perfect sacrifice, our sinless Savior. Paul states that of Christ for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus was sinless. And here in this particular verse, Paul is not focusing on Jesus' human life, but on his inglorious and shameful death. Christ experienced the full consequences of human sin. The one who lived a sinless life died a sinner's death, estranged from God and the object of God's wrath. So he was treated as a sinner in his death. God placed the sins of all of us on Christ. And his righteousness is given to those who receive him as Lord and Savior. No other person can claim living a sinless life. That is not possible. Because we inherit that sin nature from Adam. You know, read the Quran. Several times in the Quran, Muhammad is told to confess and repent and turn from his sin. Buddha struggled with sinful desires. He struggled with his desires. Confucius writes of the true gentleman, I have not attained that status, nor have I seen anyone else attain that status. But with Christ, his closest associates saw that he had no sin, and even his enemies could not point out any sin in his life. So the sinless one took on our sin to free us from the penalty of sin and eternal death. You know, there's several stories of things that happened in these prison camps in World War II. And I remember one particular story in a Jewish camp. There were a group of 20 Jewish prisoners there in a Nazi camp, and they were sent out into the fields to work every day. And when they came back, the 
prison guards had to count all of their shovels and tools to make sure they were all back because they could be used to escape from that particular prison. Well, they gathered the prisoners, of course, at the end of the day, this group of 20. A Nazi guard said, all right, throw your shovels here in the pile, and they counted them. One, two, three, five, six, seven, nine. 19. The guard looked at the prisoners and said, we're a shovel short. Who stole it? And no one knew who stole that shovel. And the captain of the guard said, I'm going to ask you one more time. And if that person doesn't step forward, we're going to shoot you all right now. And after a moment of hesitation, one prisoner stepped forward and said, I stole the shovel. And they beat that man senseless in front of all the prisoners. And eventually that man died of his wounds. And his fellow Jewish prisoners said, what an idiot. You know, he got what he deserved. You know, someone asked, what's his name? He goes, well, I don't know. But great, what a dummy. Uh, and after they beat him senseless and they dragged him away from the group, they gathered the group again and said, all right, line up. All right, let's count the shovels. One, two, three, four, five, uh, 19, 20. There's 20 shovels here. Let's count that again. Uh, 20 shovels. They had miscounted the shovels. An innocent man stepped forward, gave his life for his fellow prisoners. And many of them didn't even know his name. In the same way, the Son of God, the sinless Savior, stepped forward and took our sin and suffered a cruel death on our behalf that we may become the righteousness of God, that we may live and be free from the penalty of sin and death. And the life lesson we learn is that the sacrificial death of Christ confirms God's tremendous love for each one of us. The God of creation who didn't have to, but chose to come into our fallen world and to suffer as he had to, because he had to pay that price for our sin. The sinless Savior took on our penalty that we may have everlasting life for all who would believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Third, third reason for the virgin birth is that only God could pay the price. Sin requires death, or as the Bible talks, the shedding of blood for its payment. But there's one problem. The eternal God doesn't die. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So the Savior had to be human in order to take our place. An animal cannot fulfill that role. So in order to die a sacrificial death for all mankind, the Savior had to be human. He had to be sinless. But the death of an ordinary man wouldn't pay for sins eternally for the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future. Only God could pay that kind of price. So we needed a Savior who was man, but also 100% God. And indeed, this is what Christ accomplished by coming into the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, For he is the propitiation, fancy word there, for our sins, and not only ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. So John states Jesus is the propitiation, or the means by which we are forgiven, the means of forgiveness for our sins. 
And John makes it clear he's not only the propitiation for our sins, that's of John and his fellow believers, but also for the rest of the world and for all time. So the death of Christ was intended for all mankind and for all time. Now this doesn't mean that everyone is saved. This is not teaching universalism, all right? Because John makes it very clear that it's only those who receive the gift of Christ's sacrificial death, only those who place their trust in Jesus Christ, only those then receive the gift of eternal life. So it's like this. The death of Christ extends to all. The offer is made to all. But it is effective only to those who believe. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whosoever will believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Whosoever will, the invitation is given to all who believe in him. Only those who believe will have eternal life. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me alone. Although the offer is given to all, it's effective only to those who would receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. He is the only one who could fulfill the law, fulfill the righteous standards of God, and pay the price for our sin. You know, many of us love the series Lord of the Rings. It was one of my favorites when I read it in graduate school, because in high school I never read any books. So it took me to graduate school to finally start reading this kind of great stuff. And you know the story of the, the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Rings, how the salvation of Middle-earth begins. And in the Fellowship of the Ring, I hope many of you got to see that great movie or better yet read the book, the future of Middle-earth rests on one ring, right? The Ring of Power. And the ring was made by the evil, evil Lord, the evil Lord Sauron. And while he wore the ring, he was absolutely unstoppable. And he was about to defeat Middle-earth when he was defeated in a great battle with men, dwarves, and elves. They fought together. And it is in this battle that the Lord Sauron, the ring of power, was lost. And now it is in the hands of this little hobbit named Frodo Baggins. And Sauron, the Dark Lord, has slowly regained his power and is now looking for the ring. And Sauron will destroy all of Middle-earth unless the ring of power is once and for all destroyed. So a fellowship of brave men, dwarves, and elves volunteer to take the ring to the evil land of Mordor to destroy the ring in the lake of fire. However, they soon realize no man, no elf, no dwarf can resist the power of evil that resides in the ring. Whoever carries the ring soon succumbs to its evil power. However, there's one, the little hobbit Frodo Baggins, he has the ability to resist the power of the ring better than anyone else. And he alone then, he alone knows 
must be the ring bearer and make that dangerous journey to Mordor and destroy the ring, a journey in which he probably will not return from. Because it's he alone that could bear the weight of the ring and end its power and defeat evil from the world. Well, in Genesis chapter 3, sin entered into creation and eventually brought forth death. And we've been under its dark power and we have been waiting for the only one who could bear the weight of the sin of the world and defeat its power. And that day came nearly 2,000 years ago when the Son of God arrived upon the earth. He alone could bear the burden of sin and defeat the power of death because he is the perfect man and the infinite eternal God. Through the incarnation, God confirms his faithfulness to redeem us from sin and death. These are three reasons for the virgin birth, and it's significant for a few reasons. The virgin birth highlights the uniqueness of Christ. This is another aspect of the uniqueness of Christ. No one entered into the world in the manner in which Christ did. Only God can create life. So the virgin birth highlights and is another confirmation that Christ is indeed the divine Son of God. The unique and miraculous nature of Christ was displayed throughout his life, from his birth, which was miraculous, to the miracles he performed in his ministry, to his miraculous sinless life, to his resurrection from the dead, from his entrance into the world, to his resurrection and ascension to heaven, the life of Christ was truly miraculous. No other person lived a sinless, miraculous life as Christ. No one even comes close. Second, only Jesus qualifies as the Savior of the world. We needed a sinless, perfect sacrifice. We needed someone who was divine to pay the, pri the full price of sin for all mankind. Only someone 100% God, 100% man, could fulfill and pay the price of sin. Therefore, since he's the only Savior, he's the only one that can bring eternal life. And for all those who trust in Jesus Christ, the gift of eternal life is yours. When you repent of sin and trust him as your Lord and Savior, as the one who died in your place to rescue you from sin and death. He's the only one that can bring eternal life. And finally, it displays the faithfulness of God. In the Hebrew, the word is hesed, faithful, loyal love. Although we were faithless, God remained faithful, came into our world, suffered alongside of us to bring the gift of eternal life to each one of us. Well, to be the Savior of the world required a special Savior, the sinless Son of God. And the salvation of mankind began with the virgin birth, the beginning of the miraculous life of Christ. From the beginning, his entrance, to the day he ascended, he lived a supernatural, miraculous life. And that's why we celebrate the virgin birth. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your entrance into the world. 
we thank you for the season that we can remember and commemorate your entrance into the world that launched the beginning of our salvation. We pray that as we celebrate, we would remember the tremendous gift that has been given to us, that we may remember your faithfulness and your love displayed through the Christmas story. And we pray we would understand it in an even greater and special way this holiday season. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even schedule an apologetics conference at your location, give him a call. In Hawaii, that number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Be sure to use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. Oh,